Thank you. I'd, as I said, I'd firstly like to acknowledge Lillian and James Martin for their contribution both to my position here at the University of Oxford and indeed for the establishment of the George Centre for Healthcare Innovation. Without their funding support and indeed the funding support from my uh, um, institution based in Australia, the George Institute, we wouldn't have been able to establish here in Oxford. Um, what I hope to do today is, is firstly talk about changing lifestyles and changing disease patterns globally and then move on to talk about the effects of those changing patterns for healthcare and how we're going to manage those healthcare costs moving forward in the future. In the latter part of my presentation, I'm going to speak specifically about the work that the George Centre for Healthcare Innovation is planning to do over the next few years and hope to give you some insight into those plans. And indeed, I'd certainly, at the end of my presentation and the discussions that we have later, I'd be very interested in your ideas and anyone or any organisations who are interested in partnering with the George moving forward to think about innovative solutions to how we provide safe, effective and affordable healthcare for the population globally, your suggestions would be most welcome. Some of you may have seen this recent article in the BBC, 1st of November, entitled India Loses Stomach for the Pot Belly. And as you might see down here, what it highlights is that it says, India has long battled with malnutrition, but rising incomes and changing diets have meant obesity and diabetes are growing problems too, challenging the long-held notion that a paunch is an indication of health. I'm sure many of you who go to countries like India or China would see what we see here, the juxtaposition between the transition from infectious disease, maternal and child health to the major problems that we're seeing in the UK, US and countries like Australia. The growing increase in chronic disease, obesity, um, that is increasingly pervasive when you go to countries such as India. This article continues on, and I think another point the article talks about is a politician, one of India's politicians, whose response to his obesity was to choose gastric banding, a very expensive operation to deal with what arguably is a lifestyle problem. So I think in this article, there are two points that are illustrated that I want to bring up in the rest of my presentation. One, that transition that we're seeing globally across the world from infectious diseases to chronic diseases, combined with growing healthcare costs, which really do pose challenges for us in the 21st century. What we're seeing in India is common throughout much of Asia. What we are seeing is growing um, GDP per capita, increasingly wealthy countries overall. What we're seeing as a consequence of that is many people moving into cities. As many of you would know, this year we passed the 50% mark. More than 50% of the world's population now lives in cities. And that transition from rural to urban has, and that transition 
to increasing incomes has meant also that we're seeing changing lifestyle patterns, increasing levels of food consumption, decreasing levels of physical activity, increasing levels of physical, um, increasing levels of related health problems. Not surprisingly though, um, economic growth is overall a very positive thing. And it's that economic growth that is associated with increasing numbers of people living to the age of 80. And indeed, what we'll see in particular in places like India and China, massive numbers of the population over the next 20 years and more uh, reaching the age of 80. So a very changing uh, demographic, very, very changing economic circumstances leading to very different lifestyles and as a consequence changing, quite dramatically changing patterns of disease. So for example, if we look at the projections that we have about deaths over the next 20 to 30 years, we can see, oops, I've gone the wrong way, we can see that the chronic diseases are going to continue to increase over the next 20 years, whereas many of the um, communicable diseases and indeed many of the issues associated with poor maternal and child health are going to decrease. Now, arguably, it might be easy to say, well, this is just a problem of, this is just what we're going to see increasingly in high-income countries. It really doesn't affect those low-income countries. But if we look at the projections of cause of death by income, as we see already, as we've articulated, if we look at um, the areas from down here, this very low level is the issues of um, maternal child health, infectious diseases, at this sort of blue level here. Now, if we look at high-income countries already, almost all the causes of death are from chronic disease, and that is continued, projected to continue for the next 20 years. In middle-income countries already, you will see that only a small proportion in middle-income countries, such as China and India, uh, are deaths caused by the traditional um, maternal child health infectious diseases, and indeed, over the next 30 years, we'll see the majority, way and above, the majority of deaths in middle-income countries are going to be associated with chronic disease. Currently in low-income countries, not surprisingly, as you would expect, about 50% of all deaths are from maternal child health infectious diseases. But if you look over the next 20 years, that is going to change dramatically. So about 75% of deaths even in the low-income countries in the world, are going to occur as a result of chronic disease and indeed injuries. So we're seeing very different patterns already in high-income countries to that which we saw 50 years ago. And over the next 20 years, that transition, particularly in low-income countries, is going to change dramatically. Not surprisingly then, this has major implications for healthcare costs. And what I'm going to do, oh, sorry, one last one, I should re-emphasise this. The previous slides fo focused on, on um, death. This is on disease, learning how to use this equipment. 
this slide focuses on disease burden, so disability. Um, and just very briefly to look at here, these are the conditions that are going to be the leading causes of disease burden in, by the year 2030. These are the ones that are going to go down over time. So just re-emphasising, it's not just a matter of changes in patterns of death, but it is a change in patterns of disease burden. So, very different important issues as a result for healthcare costs. And let's start by focusing on what's been happening in the UK over the last 25 years. As you can see, healthcare costs in the UK have increased dramatically. There's been a 500% increase over the last 25 years in those costs. Unfortunately, they are not public health services. I'd love to be able to say that you were seeing a, a dramatic increase in public health services. But unfortunately, those increases in costs are costs associated with clinical services in the UK. Indeed, over the last 20 years, we've seen a 200% increase in costs of clinical services in the UK, far outstripping the increase in gross domestic product. A large driver of those increasing costs inevitably relates to staffing. $120 billion pound, $120 billion pound budget for the NHS. 60 to 65% of the costs of the NHS are staff-related costs another 20% are drugs, and another 20% for the other um, aspects of healthcare. In the last two decades, we've seen increases in staff numbers, increases in staff remuneration, and increases in pharmaceutical costs that account for these dramatic increases in costs in the healthcare system here. In 2010, there were approximately 1.45 million staff employed by the National NHS, about 722 were clinical staff and about 700,000 uh, were other staff. Over the past 10 years, there's been a 27% increase in staff, 30% in amongst clinical staff and 26% amongst other staff. Just to, to emphasise those changes in remuneration over time, quite an interesting graph here comparing um, remuneration of general practitioners over this period with the remuneration of members of parliament. As you'll see, over 10 years, a 300% crude increase in the remuneration paid to general practitioners. If you also look at the changes in real earnings within the NHS, what you see here, yes, there have been changes in those, those remuneration across all um, special or groupings within the NHS. The major, the greatest increases have been amongst the, the specialists, amongst the consultants. So over the 10 years, there's been a 100% real increase in their earnings over the past 10 years. Now, what I've described for the UK 
is replicated and indeed those changes in costs are even more dramatic in other countries is the, the US. So what we're seeing in the UK is typical of many high-income countries. We're seeing that same pattern emerging across all high-income countries as they're trying to manage those increasing burden of chronic disease and the, the sort of care that's needed to manage them. But it's not only what we see in high-income countries. Indeed, if we look at healthcare expenditure in a middle-income country, such as China, we're seeing also dramatic increases in healthcare expenditure. So indeed, over the last 10 years, as shown in this graph, there's been a 350% increase in the cost of healthcare expenditure in China also. And again, this increase in cost dramatically outstrips the increase in gross domestic product. Fundamentally, what does this mean? We believe that the current doctor-centric model of healthcare is unaffordable in most high-income countries, and quite frankly, it's unaffordable in all middle and low-income countries. There will need to be incremental changes to current system, so I beg your pardon, incremental changes to current systems will not be sufficient if we're going to turn around these costs. There need to be some dramatic disruptive solutions to ensure that we can provide current services, let alone looking to countries like low and middle income countries who are struggling to provide for current services, let alone those changes that are going to occur as a result of the increasing chronic disease. So business as usual is not going to be sufficient. We have to do something dramatically different. And that's where the George Centre for Healthcare Innovation comes in. We believe our role is to help find alternative strategies for the delivery of essential health care in resource-poor settings, globally and locally. And in many respects, some might consider UK as a resource-poor setting when it comes to considering healthcare costs. What we're planning to do is to work with primary care, in primary care settings, particularly globally in low-income countries, and in the UK to work initially with district general hospitals. Our focus will be primary care and looking at how do we build a cadre of non-physician healthcare workers supported by innovative technology to address this growing healthcare cost. So why we want to focus on globally and not just focus on the, on the UK? I've shown you those dramatic changes in healthcare costs in UK. Why, we could spend our lifetime looking at the UK, but why would we want to look globally? Well, if you look at where are the patients currently who have a 25% 10-year risk of stroke or heart attack. And if you look here, arguably about 84 million people in the north, when we think about the north-south divide, um, about 84 million people are at risk in, in, in the northern hemisphere. 
about 220 million people at risk in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay, so where are the drugs that we know are effective that can treat people who are at risk of stroke or heart attacks? Essentially, in the Northern Hemisphere, the cardiovascular drug market is about 90 billion US dollars. By comparison, if we look in the Southern Hemisphere, the drug market is less than $10 billion for those 200 million individuals at risk. Now, arguably, there's probably some over-management of uh, patients in high-income countries, but surely that difference between the $19 billion and the $10 billion, given the numbers at risk, must be associated with under-management. So the drugs that we know are effective are not getting to people in low-income countries. Where are the doctors? If we look at the US, about 27 doctors per 10,000 population. The UK, about 30, doc 30 doctors per 10,000 population. Go to China, it's down to about 15 per 10,000. South America, much the same. By the time you start looking at uh, India, Southeast Asia, and Africa, we're seeing it's about six to one per 10,000 population. So we're totally under-resourced in terms of doctors to manage some of these conditions we're talking about. India currently has about 600,000 doctors. If we were to apply that same NHS ratio of doctors to patients, they would need to have three million doctors. Now, quite frankly, it's totally unaffordable for a country like India, totally impractical to train this many doctors in the next 20 years, and arguably we would suggest it's probably unnecessary. So what we have been doing at the George Institute for Global Health, based out of our, our centre in, in Australia, working with our partner institute in India, is working in the province of Andhra Pradesh um, and have initiated over the last 10 years, working in Andhra Pradesh over the last 10 years on what we've called the Andhra Pradesh Rural Health Initiative. We've been working in 45 villages in the Godavari district of Andhra Pradesh, working with about 200,000 people in those populations, villages, where currently basic health care is provided by the governments and NGOs. What we've set about doing over the last 10 years is firstly, we wanted to look at what were the major causes of death in those villages, what was the burden of disease, and what were the treatment practices. So we worked with community health workers in each of those villages, trained them to perform verbal autopsies on all the deaths and to undertake disease surveys. What we found from the mortality surveillance surprised all of us. Even in those rural villages, already more than one half of all deaths were due to chronic diseases. And indeed, 40% of these deaths were occurring in people less than 65 years of age. Dreadful. 
What we then went on to do was to look at were these individuals being treated. So we looked at the use of medications among people with cardiovascular disease and in particular looked at those who had a, a history of heart attack and saw that only 15% were using aspirin, were on aspirin, one of the cheapest drugs that's available at the moment. With those with a history of stroke, less than 10% were receiving aspirin. Such a cheap drug. So in other words, most people with cardiovascular disease in these villages were not receiving any, even the cheapest treatments that were available. So we then went on to stage two of this initiative and decided that what we needed to do was to increase the identification of individuals who are at high risk of heart, stroke, heart attack or stroke and to manage those individuals. So we went back to the community health workers and trained them to assess individuals at risk of cardiovascular disease and trained them to refer those high-risk patients to local GPs. Well, we had some success, but some failure. There was a significant increase in the referral of high-risk patients to local doctors, but once they went to those local doctors, there was no detectable increase in the use of affordable preventive treatments. <laughs> Very interesting. So, it raises some questions for us. Given, given what had happened there, how can we provide essential health care to the Indian population, particularly in those rural areas? We believe the only way we can do that if we're seen bottlenecks with the doctors in those regions is to train and empower a new low-cost healthcare workforce. Arguably, what we think we should be doing is upskilling the community healthcare workers, or the ashes as they're called, as one approach to dealing with this problem. So that will require purpose-built solutions modular health care, we believe sophisticated IT support if we're going to ensure those community health workers can provide the best health care, arguably novel drugs and devices to assist this, innovative financing, and arguably it needs to be done in some sustainable way as a business. And indeed one can look at models of the Aravind Eye Hospitals which provide very cheap cataract surgery and run as a business. Amazing um, example. So this is where the George Centre comes in. Basically built, building on the work that our colleagues in India and Australia have been doing at the George Centre for Healthcare Innovation we're currently working with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering here at the University of Oxford to look at how we develop primary health care um, using IT platforms. So we're interested in looking at smartphone-based health records. We're interested in looking at clinical pathways that would focus on screening, diagnosis, treatment, follow-up and referral. And we do this using evidence-based, resource-sensitive management algorithms, electronic decision support. 
Initially, we believe we need to focus on what we're good at, and we've got a lot of experience across the George in, in the treatment of diabetes and the prevention of heart and kidney disease. Later on, if we can show the success of this model, we'd hope to, to focus on um, a broader range of common chronic conditions that don't require hospital care. What we believe that this would do would empower both healthcare providers to provide a better service, but also empower health consumers. For healthcare providers, they would be able to use this um, IT to, to, to understand their individualised patient results and to recommend evidence-based treatments. For the individuals, consumers, that have access to their personal healthcare results, they'd be provided with lifestyle advice and indeed using that mobile technology or IT technology um, be prompted about adherence to medications. And indeed that would provide access so that anything goes wrong, we'd be able to give them access to emergency contacts. Inevitably, if we're going to do this, we must make sure there's quality control, that there's ongoing performance management and continuous improvement in what we're planning to do here. We're also working with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering to, to look at a whole range of, of technologies that might be used moving forward. Um, the group there are just doing some extraordinary stuff at the moment, um, really looking at smartphone-based biosensors, in other words, lab on a chip, using smartphones to measure blood pressure, heart rate, heart sounds, microvascular eye disease, to even look at respiratory volume, bone mineral density, ultrasound. It's some amazing stuff they're looking at at the moment for low cost. So extraordinary possibilities that we have in working with some very smart people here at Oxford. What we plan to do in practice with this idea is not only work in those villages in Andhra Pradesh that we've been working with previously, but we're also going to partner with the George Institute in China, um, where we have a, a network already established in, in rural parts of China. Um, so in total, we're planning to work with our teams in China and teams in India, uh, overall working in 300 villages with over a million people. What we're interested in doing as a result of this collaboration with the group here in Oxford is improving primary care for people at high risk of cardiovascular disease. So what we plan to do is not only work with the community health workers, but given the results of the work we did in Andhra Pradesh, we also need to work with the doctors. We need to provide them with the IT that will enable them all to do this um, comprehensively and safely. We need to look at providing patient apps for, for, for the consumers. And one of the things that we're very mindful of as well, um, particularly in China, that we need to be mindful of looking at financial incentives because that's the name of the game when you're working in China in particular. Clearly the outcomes we're going to be looking at in this are survival, disability and cost effectiveness. Just to, to give you an, update or an outline of what we have been doing in China to date and why we're also combining our work in Andhra Pradesh with the work in China, we have a major initiative there called Life Seeds, Transforming Health in Rural China. 
We're working currently in five rural Chinese provinces and the area um, just north of around Beijing in the northern part, northeastern part of China arguably, which is known as the Stroke Belt. It's an area where there's high levels of salt consumption and high, very high levels of stroke. We're partnering with the Minister of Health in China and the provincial health bureaus there. Um, our lead partner in, in, in Beijing is Peking University Health Science Centre, but we're working with schools of public health across each of the provinces we're working in. We've got funding through the, the um, Ministry of Health in China, the National Institutes in Health, of Health in the US, the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, and CDC in China, and the George Centre here at Oxford is going to provide funding support for this initiative. So this will be a major component of the George Centre's work over the next few years. Let's come back to the, the, U, the UK. Some of you have probably seen some of these advertisements around. Uh, David Cameron, we can't go on like this. I'll cut the deficit, not the NHS. Well, quite frankly, the question we need to ask is how do we control the NHS budget while maintaining healthcare service quality? Now, given the information I've just provided you with earlier in my presentation, the only way we can do this is if we reduce staff costs. 60 to 65% of costs in the NHS are staff, so we have to reduce staff costs. We need to think about utilising technology. We need to look at how do we standardise care and we need to look at provider incentives. We believe we need to think along the lines that conditions that are amenable to treatment by smart algorithms should be managed by non-physician healthcare workers. Conditions that are not amenable to treatment in this way, of course, should be managed by doctors. So again, working with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering, we believe that we need to take smart algorithm-based care and develop that low-cost specialist health care. We need to be providing electronic decision support that's patient-specific, that's guideline-based, and delivered by specialist health technicians. Central monitoring, quality control, and arguably we may be able to provide health care that's 50% cheaper. We believe in the first instance we should start looking at ambulatory care and indeed we're designing some research initiatives at the moment that would do this in the area of diabetes and hypertension, coronary heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, pain management. If we're successful in these areas, we believe it's possible that we can take this approach into the acute care setting working in the emergency rooms on conditions that are relatively easily managed using algorithms. So I hope you can see we've got a fairly full agenda for the next few years and we're very keen to collaborate with as many people as possible if we're going to address these sorts of conditions. We know, however, there are going to be challenges and that's why we can't just stay working within the 
medical sciences or with our colleagues in engineering. We're going to need to work with our colleagues in the social sciences because it's easy to do the technology, but the challenges are going to come from professional resistance. There'll be safety concerns, there'll be cultural resistance. So we need to work with our colleagues in the social sciences to understand those cultures and bring about those changes in a way that we're going to get people on side. We're going to use our expertise in undertaking large-scale trials um, to, to show that we can prove the efficacy, the safety and cost-effectiveness of these approaches. Our initial plan, as I mentioned at the outset, is to work with district general hospitals to look at low-cost specialist services for chronic disease and very much have those uh, services IT enabled. Our research focus, if we're working with hospitals, will be cluster randomised controlled trials, um, comparing district general hospitals who are involved in this process with those who, who are using usual care. So a very ambitious programme of research that we have for the future. I think I've come to the end of my time, more, more indeed. And um, in conclusion then, I think we believe that it is possible to provide healthcare for the bulging population in the world, for the bulging population as a result of the, the dramatically increasing numbers of individuals who will um, have die if we don't provide care from chronic disease, who will die from chronic disease if we don't provide appropriate care. But it will require disruptive solutions to provide that care for all who need it. It means we will have to do robust research to make sure we, we, uh, whatever we do is safe, that it is cost effective. And clearly we'll need to carefully manage those sectorial interests. So in closing, the question that was asked for the seminar series, is this planet full? Is the planet full? Now I'm not sure that I can provide an evidence-based answer to that question at all, but I think the question is, can we provide safe, uh, effective, uh, affordable healthcare for 7 billion people? I believe we can. I think the George Centre believes we can. And I think we'd welcome opportunities to discuss our approaches with all of you in the audience and welcome opportunities for people who are interested in thinking out of the box to address this question to come and talk with us. Thank you for your time. <laughs>